Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and um, it's uh, so good to gather, uh, to worship together for our Sunday service. Um, If you're just joining us, we are in a series called This Then Is How You Pray, and we're going over the Lord's Prayer and taking a look at each of those petitions in the Lord's Prayer and asking the question, how do we pray that? What does it mean? What did Jesus mean for us to pray um, those petitions? By way of introduction, I want to say that prayer is just super, super important. Uh, John Calvin, our great uh, predecessor and reformer of the church, said that prayer is the primary and the perpetual exercise of your faith. And so for something so important, so inextricably tied to our faith, uh, what better blueprint then? Uh, is there to follow than learning how to pray from the one who we have faith in, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. And uh, I had a lot of text to work with today. It's your kingdom come. And, um, and so w- w- we'll take a look at that. And it, it was good because it, it, it kind of pressed me and pushed me out into the rest of the scripture, searching for the theme of the kingdom of God. And actually, y- you find the kingdom everywhere. And, and, and maybe that might be one way to just summarize the entire Bible, that it is your kingdom come. And so we'll we'll take a look at what it means to pray this, your kingdom come, by way of uh, asking four questions. Um, The four questions are, what is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? What opposes the kingdom? And how will the kingdom eventually come back? What is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? Uh, What opposes the kingdom? And then how will the kingdom come back? First, what is the kingdom and where is the kingdom together? Um, what is the kingdom? There are a lot of popular definitions out there. Uh, some of them include God's sovereign reign over creation or God's people in God's place under God's rule. And all of them, I think, are biblically fine and, and faithful. Uh, but for me personally, um, it just doesn't do it for me. It's, it's not practically helpful enough and not specific and concrete enough. I think J.I. Packer offers a helpful definition in his book, Praying the Lord's Prayer. You'll find it in your bulletin. And he says this uh, to define the kingdom of God. That the Lord is king in the sense of being sovereign over his world is assumed throughout the Bible. But God's kingship and his kingdom are different things. The former is a fact of creation commonly called providence. The latter is a reality of redemption, properly called grace. The kingdom of God is God's reign of grace in the heart and life of one who bows in penitent trust before his authority, desiring only to be delivered from evil and led in paths of righteousness. And that is precisely how it is that we make Jesus king. So God's kingdom is not a place, but rather a relationship. It exists wherever people enthrone Jesus as Lord of their lives. The kingdom of God is the realm of grace where the damage done to us by sin is repaired. And the gospel of grace proved to be what the kingdom 
is all about. Jerry Packer says that the kingdom of God is not a place, but rather a relationship in this present state of fallenness and redemption. And so can we even ask the question, where is the kingdom of God? If, if J.I. Packer defines the kingdom of God as a relationship, where certainly heaven is right now, and it is in heaven, the reality of the kingdom of God, where God is seated on his throne and, and Christ is there at his right hand, of course. Uh, but what we mean to say is that the kingdom of God is not a physical place or a geographic pinpoint. Um, actually, all throughout history, uh, people have thought that maybe where the seat of Christianity was, where the most prominent church was, that's where the kingdom of God was. And so it could have been Jerusalem at one time, could have been Antioch, could have been Rome or Constantinople, could have been maybe Plymouth Rock with the pilgrims when they came over and brought it to the States. Um, in Genesis, we see that it was a physical place, right? God dwelt with his people. In Revelation, at the very end, we see that it will be a physical place. But the question is, where is the kingdom now? Because that's what matters to us. Where is the kingdom? Where do we find it? Uh, we need to figure this out. Because Jesus said things like, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God is here, he said. It's a present reality. He also, if you remember the exchange that he has with the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman asks, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And how does Jesus respond? He says this, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So if it's not a geographic place, um, it's not a physical place, where is it? Where is it presently? Well, the kingdom of God is the redemptive reign in the heart of believers. It's in the relationship that we have with Christ that we see the kingdom of God. Meaning this, your entrance into the kingdom has everything to do with your living and breathing relationship with Jesus the King. Now, many of us think, of the kingdom of God as synonymous with heaven, right? The place where we go to or the place that's coming. But right now we are. Right now we're in the kingdom of God through our relationship with Jesus. See, when all other religions will basically say, here's what you need to do to get to heaven or some heaven equivalent like nirvana or, I don't know, some state of bliss or blessing after you die, only Christianity would say, you have heaven already. You're in the kingdom of God now in and through a relationship. So when we pray, your kingdom come, what we mean is this. Let my relationship with you, Jesus, be so meaningful and significant uh, that it redeems and transforms me in every part of my life now. That's what we mean when we pray, thy kingdom come or your kingdom come. But you know, already we run into problems as modern people thinking about this, and uh, we're, we're already on to the third point. Uh, we're talking about what opposes the kingdom. And the problems as modern people that we have with this topic is that we don't have kings and kingdoms uh, like we used to in history. We can't relate to it um, maybe as maybe um, people who lived before us. Um, we would think it unsophisticated and it's totally medieval. I mean, we don't, 
We don't live in a feudal system anymore with kings and lords and barons and lands and territory and things like that. And, um, and in particular, as Americans, I think, uh, we don't like kings telling us what to do. We're very suspicious um, of certain despots or leaders who would assume unilateral rule and power and authority over us. I mean, if you think about it, it's really the basis for the foundation and forming of our own nation here, right? Because we don't like people telling us what to do. And so we'd say as modern people that we're past these primitive ideas, but I want to push back and say, did we really? Did we really uh, sort of move on from these very antiquated ideas such as kings and kingdoms? Sarah Bareilles, gosh, I love her. Uh, her music is so good. Um, and I really appreciate uh, one of her songs called King of Anything. It's really old now. It came out in 2010. Um, but uh, it, it's printed for you in the bulletin, and I um, have for you there the chorus, verse 2, and the bridge. And I'll read it for us, but I think it's super insightful about what she says. And, and believe it or not, she's actually saying, well, let me read the quote. Who cares if you disagree? You're not me. Who made you king of anything? So you dare to tell me who to be, who died and made you king of anything? You sound so innocent, all full of good intent, swear you know best, but you expect me to jump on board with you and ride off into your delusional sunset. And here's the kicker. All my life, I've tried to make everybody happy while I just hurt and hide, waiting for someone to tell me it's my turn to decide. Did you guys hear that? It's my turn to decide. Did you, do, do you see what she said? She is rejecting the old narrative of kings and kingdoms, just like we would as modern people because we don't have that anymore. But she says that it's her turn to decide. And in doing so, she's actually perpetuating the same narrative of king and kingdoms just in a self-centered way where you're the king now. We've made ourselves the king. Um, so in other words, we've coronated ourselves as king over our lives with unilateral power, rule, and authority. But when we do this, when we do this, the Bible says we're, we're going to see some serious breakdowns in ourselves and also uh, some serious consequences for having our own supposed kingdoms. Um, Philip Ryken, a PhD from Oxford and also the president of Wheaton College, it's a... Um, I think uh, maybe one or two of us have graduated from that college from our membership, um, as far as I know. Uh, but he identifies that actually there, there, there could be these three kingdoms that we set up for ourselves in our lives. One of them is the kingdom of stuff. One of them is the kingdom of sex. And the other is the kingdom of success. And really, these three sort of puppet kings and kingdoms we set up for ourselves, but it becomes an extension of this bigger kingdom that we belong to, that we've set up for ourselves, and it's the kingdom of self, right? But when you serve these kings and kingdoms, uh, there's going to be breakdown. There's going to be deterioration on multiple levels and areas in your life, and you're going to suffer consequences. Take, for instance, what we know from our experience, right? If we find or place or enthrone success, let's say, in the workplace as our functional king, 
We're going to enthrone success as our king, and so we're going to serve it. Our loyalty and allegiances are going to go there. Our, our, our devotion is going to go there. And we're going to work hard. We're going to try and show initiative at our work to, to prove to our uh, bosses that we have what it takes and that we add value to the company. And so we're, after a while, pretty soon, you're going to let your achievements give you a sense of worth and value and identity. But as soon as you miss a deadline, or as soon as you lose a client that was really important to the company, or as soon as you say something stupid at a meeting where you're just off your game, or you start comparing your relative success to someone else's superior success, you know what happens to your sense of worth. And it just gets shot through with regret, and you'll be kicking yourself and feel unworthy. But you know what you'll have to do? You'll have to keep serving that king because you've enthroned it, right? And so you'll become anxious. You'll become pressured at work. You'll have to put in longer hours just to keep up or to make up for your mishaps, right? Maybe you'll have to uh, bleed into your Saturday weekend, right, um, and continue work, and maybe sometimes even into Sunday. I mean, it, it becomes unrelenting, the demands of this king that we set up for our lives, and it just becomes this harsh master that dictates and rules our lives, it's self-defeating. And really, in this state of a fallen world, when we feed our desires like that, because these kings that we set up, they're really just um, uh, quantifications of our desires in our hearts. And so when we do that, we feed our desires, and it just becomes ravenous. It just keeps eating more and more from us. It demands more. The kings and kingdoms we set up at the center of our lives enslave us to its rule and its dominion. But you know, it gets worse because not only do these kings and kingdoms uh, uh, vie for more of us and more of our sacrifice and more of our devotion, but actually these kings and kingdoms compete against each other because we're not one-dimensional people, right? Like we have desires that are more than one, but what we do is set up our desires as multiple various kings and kingdoms all around us, but they compete for uh, dominance. They compete for your devotion. Uh, they compete for territory in your calendars and in your energy, in your social calendars. So let's say we, we took success, but let's say your allegiance to it burns out. Well, you know, what, what, what other king and kingdoms right there to pick you right up? Well, maybe romance, right? You know what? It's okay. Work's not that important. What really matters is relationships. What really matters is intimacy and fellowship with other people. And so you go for that. And in the beginning, it's good. Well, in the beginning, it's maybe hard, right? Because uh, you need to find someone, right? But then after you find somebody, right, it, it's all good, right? It's a little bit costly here in the city, right? A couple of drinks for both you and her and, you know, racks up pretty quick. But still, it's, it's a lot of fun because we're in the city, right? But you know, but you know what happens, right? The, the magic fades. Uh, 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 veils uh, come like scales off your eyes, and you begin to see that actually a relationship is just really tough, and it demands more of you. And because you've placed yourself at the throne, well, it just becomes just god awfully tiring. And so maybe romance sort of loses its flavor. And so what else? Well, there are other kingdoms that pick you right back up, right? 
um, asking for your citizenship. Uh, maybe it's material right, things. Uh, the, the kingdom of stuff, as Riken references, and, and, and on and on it goes. The, the point is that there's this constant turnover of kings and kingdoms vying for your allegiance and loyalty. Trevor Wax, in his piece called Behold Your King, says this. We all live according to the dictates of someone or something. It may be money. It may be pleasure. It may be reputation. It may be power. It may be yourself. But no make, make, make no mistake, we have a king. The only question is, who's the rightful king? Who should be king? But you know, it, it even gets worse than this. It gets worse than this because according to the Bible, when we live and serve kings and kingdoms of the self in this way, uh, the Bible calls that open rebellion and treason and insurrection against the king and the kingdom of God. And should we continue in asserting our kingship and kingdom over and against the king and kingdom of God, uh, we're going to get what we deserve. And you know what we deserve is a battle with the almighty Okay, it's going to be a battle, and we're going to we're going to see defeat by his hands. You know, the biggest and most powerful threat to our kingship and kingdom is not Satan, and it's not death. Uh, But hear this: your biggest threat and your biggest worry is not Satan or death, but it's the Holy Lord God Almighty and His advancing kingdom. That's what you should be afraid of, meaning we've offended the Lord of lords, and he's come to deal with us. He has come to destroy all his enemies, and anyone who would stand in the way of the kingdom of perfect righteousness and peace and joy is going to pay severely, eternally. And so he sees sinners as his enemies because we've set up for ourselves, we've enthroned ourselves as kings, as a competing king and kingdom, and, and so he sends his son, actually, to deal with them. But, you know, here's the difference between Jesus and all the other kings who've come before. You know, whereas kings before have come with force and a show of strength, Jesus came with the strength of intentional weakness. Uh, the strength of intentional weakness. Because, you know, it takes a lot to lose willfully, It takes a lot to take off the cloak of power and to take on the cloak of humiliation. Whereas the kings and kingdoms of the world are overbearing and harsh in enslaving you to their mastery and dominion, Jesus was meek and he was gentle and he invites us and we're told actually in Matthew 11, come to me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest uh, for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What was a yoke? A yoke was a wooden device meant to harness you in place, harness the beast of burden into place, but mainly it was actually a device to alleviate the burden of weight for the beast. So why did Jesus use this metaphor? Well, it's because he knew he could make his yoke light and e- light, um, so he can make his yoke light and easy for us to bear because he knew he would carry another device of wood, the yoke, another kind of yoke, 
and it was the yoke of our own sin and slavery, meaning that he took on the full weight of the yoke of sin and slavery, the place where we should have been. And what does that accomplish? What alleviates, it alleviates in full the burden of weight of our sins in its entirety, and it also alleviates and Jesus in himself absorbs the crushing defeat that should have been ours, that should have been received from a holy and almighty God. And now because of what Jesus has done, we can take on the yoke of the king. Jesus invites us, which is light and easy, not because it reduces the cost of discipleship, but because it makes the disciples of the one who demonstrated uh, his gentleness and humility on the cross a gentle and humble king who invites us to take on his yoke. Uh, rather than a coronation, Jesus was hoisted up on a cross for his crucifixion. And for our insurrection against the king, you know what we get? We get the life and power of his resurrection, that we should have everlasting life with him. This is Jesus and his kingdom, a kingdom of love and a kingdom of grace. You see what the cross was then. Uh, Jeremy Treat says this. You'll find it in your bulletin. It says, uh, uh, maybe you won't. <laughs> Let me read it for us. He says this. This is what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. The cross is Christ's throne. The cross is Christ's throne from which he reigns with self-giving love. The essence of sin is our attempt to take God's place on the throne. The essence of salvation is God taking our place on the cross. When Jesus rose from the grave, it was a public declaration that nothing could stop God's reign from advancing on earth, not even death. Jesus is the resurrected king who brings God's mercy and majesty to a world marred with sin. Because of Jesus, we no longer are enslaved and in the bondage of slavery to our sins and the kings of self, but we're free to love him and serve him with hearts that want to in response to what he has given. Right? This is a king who came to conquer sin, but the way that he did it was to be conquered himself on a cross. No wonder then that Napoleon would say this, and you'll find that in your bulletins. Napoleon says this, uh, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. That's loyalty. That's the kind of loyalty that our king commands not by a show of force, not by conquering us or subjugating us, but by self-giving himself on a cross for us. It inspires to love like he did. It inspires us to, to bow a knee and to give honor that is due uh, to the only and rightful king who is Jesus our Lord. Finally, how will this final kingdom come and in what fashion will it arrive? And We'll just make it really quick before we end with a few application points here. The eventual kingdom of the uh, coming of the kingdom is told as a story from Genesis to Revelation, like we said, 
But while most Western stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end, uh, the, the story of the kingdom coming is told like this. It's, it's told like the beginning, middle, and then beginning. Uh, it doesn't have an end. It has a beginning. And here's what I mean by that. In, in Genesis 1, what you had was a garden full of life. And in the end, in, in Revelation, what we're told is that there's going to be another garden, but it's going to be a garden city. Uh, we're told in Genesis 1 that there was a tree of life, and we're going to see that same tree of life um, at the end. In the beginning, what you had was man, Adam and Eve, eating without God. But what you see at the end is really a beginning, but a turned beginning a remixed beginning where, you'll, where we'll enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb together with him. We're going to be invited to feast with him. Uh, in the beginning, in Genesis 1, there was a marriage. And in the end, there's also going to be another marriage. But a marriage like no history has ever seen. A marriage of Christ, the King, and his bride, the church. That's where we're headed. Beginning, middle, and beginning. And so it is going to be a little bit like a deja vu, as Philip Riken says, when the kingdom comes. Uh, deja vu is, you know, when you experience something and you're like, uh, it's familiar. I, I think I've experienced this before. Well, it's going to be something like that. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says, heaven is reality itself. And this heaven is the place from which all the images that appear in the world as shadows we only experience all those great things to come only as shadows now. But that's where we're headed. It's going to be a remixed creation. It's going to be a recreated um, creation of food and relationships and love and, and beauty and law and justice and peace as we know it now will never be as good as when we see it in perfect glory. It'll come full circle, in other words. It'll be a consummated finale. And so just a few applications for us. How should we pray your kingdom come in light of these great, amazing kingdom truths? Well, first, uh, we, we keep in mind, um, we, we should pray that knowing that the kingdom will come gradually, it'll come internally, and it'll come extensively. It'll come gradually. Jesus said, liken the kingdom of God to what? Yeast. Right, yeast in the mix of the, uh, the dough. You don't know that it's there, but pretty soon you'll, you'll start to see that it'll make the whole thing rise. Right? It'll come gradually, though. Uh, Jesus also said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The small little thing grows into the biggest tree um, in the forest, and it's going to be like that. So what does that mean when we pray your kingdom come? It means pray with perseverance because that growth is going to be gradual, right? The redemption that's happening in our lives and in the world is going to be gradual. So what that means is pray with perseverance and pray with great hope. Gradually pray or, or pray knowing that it's going to happen gradually. Second, uh, pray knowing that it's going to happen internally. Uh, the redemption from sin in our own lives. Um, Martin Luther at his first Sunday in Advent in 1522 set this, uh, because immediately when we think about the redemption of sin, we start to think about our own human effort, 
So now I got to start reading the Bible, coming out of church more, more CG, all this. But here's what he said. Therefore, you should not ask where to begin to be godly. There is no beginning except where the king enters and is proclaimed. And so what does that mean? When we pray this prayer, we should be praying things like, Father, during the sermon time, help me to see the king. In your word proclaimed, help me to see my king crucified. And from there we'll spell out repentance, because we'll see the kindness of the king, and we're told in the scriptures it's kindness that leads you to repentance. That's when you'll start to see transformation. Pray, knowing that this change will come gradually, it'll happen internally, and then finally it's going to be extensive, uh, this work that God does through our prayers. Um, J.I. Packer says that actually it's in this portion of the Lord's Prayer uh, that is the place for general intercession for people. Because what you're saying is the redemption that I see in my own life now, and that continues. Help me to see it in my uncle who doesn't believe. Help me to see it in my friend who's been, me, been with me since college, who still doesn't believe, who still has questions about Christianity. Help your kingdom come, just like it did for my life, into theirs. Pray, your kingdom come, uh, that it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, Lord Almighty, your kingdom come. Conquer our hearts by your Holy Spirit to set up the administration of grace in our hearts. Let us see the beauty and worth of your glory. Melt the ice of winter in our hearts and give way to the buds of grace and the dawning day of the kingdom of glory. We know that you can do this and delight to do it because you've done it to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's time, uh, we'll, we'll have a time of offering, and the ushers will come up to collect that. And let's give to our king, uh, who is due our honor and glory. <laughs>